And I, I mean, I would just like to apologize on the front end that I'm not gonna say anything as good as that singing. Uh, it's all downhill from there. So uh, at, least we, at least you had that, at least you had that uh, today. Um, so we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians, as you guys know. And I'll be honest, I'm standing up here looking at this talk tonight, and uh, this, this may have been a terrible idea, but um, uh, this, uh, this may all be preaching to the choir. You may not get much out of this, but may, maybe someone who's watching uh, the video on Facebook or whatever will, uh, or, or hope, hopefully you do, but I, I, I ran off track a little bit this week. So we're going through the lectionary text in the book of Ephesians, and we've been going. There's like been at least one talk, one section of Scripture from each chapter of Ephesians. And uh, the lectionary this, this week honestly just makes no sense to me whatsoever. So we've got the entire chapter of five and the first half, chapter six in Ephesians, and they are some of the most consequential <laughs> scriptures in all of, all of the Bible. Uh, historically, uh, we've, uh, honestly, say historically, we've done a lot of terrible things with these scriptures, right? They're very consequential. And the section that they chose for lectionary is Ephesians five fifteen through 21. And you heard it earlier. Tell us about living your life wisely, not foolishly, taking advantage of all the opportunities, don't be ignorant, which honestly would probably be a good sermon right now to do. Uh, don't get drunk on wine. That's always fun to, to, to talk about. Um, it talks about speaking to each other with psalms and hymns. You know, we, could, we could talk about why we sing and, and where that comes from. Um, it talks about always giving thanks to God the Father, uh, and which is, of course, an attitude you know, that focuses on gratitude, it, it is incredible and, and worthy sermon. Uh, submit to each other out of respect for Christ. These are all worthy sermons, all sermons I could have preached this week. But I spent the first four days of the week just annoyed that this is all they chose out of all this material. And um, I would argue that, the again, the lectionary skips some of the most consequential verses in all the New Testament. You'd be hard-pressed hard to find a section of Scripture more weaponized than chapter 5 and 6 of Ephesians. Uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk through Ephesians is so that we could get to this stuff. Uh, and so I went off the reservation. Uh, we're not, we're not going to talk about the lectionary text tonight because the lectionary text just ignores all of that stuff, and I just couldn't bring myself to do it. Um, there's verses, the, the verses that, that follow this <coughs> in chapter 5 and the beginning of 6 uh, talk about listening to your parents, which is, which is good enough, nice enough. But it also endorses wifely submission to husbands and slaves listening to their masters. Arguably two of the top three or four things that Christianity has gotten the most wrong in history are covered here. And on the one hand, I understand skipping that because it would be easier if we just act like it isn't there. But it is, right? And if we don't talk about it, then we, I think we risk uh, not learning from our collective mistakes in our history, and also we risk um, giving an in, inaccurate picture of what the Bible is actually saying and not saying. Um, it's not hard to use these scriptures, which I believe are intended to bring life and love and hope and peace as a weapon, and they have been over and over again. Uh, so uh, I'm sorry about this, but I want, I want to read uh, a bunch of verses here, and then I want to take like a 10,000-foot view of how we approach texts like this in the Bible. And again, you may not get anything from this. This may be totally preaching to the choir, and I apologize if it is, um, uh, but it will be over soon-ish. 
And so I want to read these, and, and you guys will start to feel some of the discomfort of what's said in some of these verses, and then I want to talk about how do we go about approaching this and finding the good news in the midst of them. So we're going to start in chapter 5, verses 21, and go through 6, uh, I think it's 4 or 14. Uh, it says this, Submit to each other out of respect for Christ. I don't have this on slides, by the way. Sorry, if you're looking for it. <laughs> I should have told you that ahead of time, what you're <laughs> frantically looking for. Uh, and submit to each other out of respect for Christ. For example, wives should submit to their husbands as if to the Lord. A husband is the head of his wife like Christ is the head of the church. That is the Savior of the body. So wives submit to their husbands and everything like the church submits to Christ. As for husbands... Love your wives just like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He did this to make her holy by washing her in a bath of water with the word. He did this to present himself with a splendid church, one without any sort of stain or wrinkle on her clothes, but rather one that is holy and blameless. That's how husbands ought to love their wives, in the same way they do their own bodies. Anyone who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hates his own body, but feeds it and takes care of it, just like Christ does for the church. Because we are parts of his body— this is why the man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two of them will be one body. Marriage is a significant allegory, and I'm applying it to Christ and the church. In any case, as for you individually, each one of you should love his wife as himself, and wives should respect their husbands. As for children, obey your parents and the Lord, because it is right. The commandment, honor your father and mother, is the first one with a promise attached, so that things will go well for you and you will live for a long time in the land. As for parents, don't provoke your children to anger, but raise them with discipline and instruction about the Lord. Verse 5. As for slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling and with sincere devotion to Christ. Don't work to make yourself look good or try to flatter people, but act like slaves of Christ, carrying out God's will from the heart. Serve your owners enthusiastically as though you were serving the Lord and not human beings. You know that the Lord will reward every person who does what is right, whether that person is a slave or a free person. As for masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Stop threatening them, because you know that both you and your slave have a master in heaven. He does not distinguish between people on the basis of status." That's, that's a lot. There are two verses from this portion of Ephesians that have caused untold suffering. Ephesians 5.24, So wives submit to their husbands in everything like the church submits to Christ. Ephesians 6.5, As for slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling and with sincere devotion to Christ. Now it would be near impossible to survey the damage that the misuse of these scriptures have done in our world, when they've been lifted up and strategically applied to benefit those uh, who benefit from the worst possible interpretation of them. People have stayed in horrible marriages, abusive marriages. People have, uh, women have been told that they cannot lead and they don't have a voice and that they should just be quiet and follow. Human beings were treated <laughs> like cattle. These verses were used by Christians to endorse this kind of activity, right? I don't need to take time to lay out all the carnage of these ideas. You're mostly familiar with them, I imagine. There's been plenty of reckoning happening the couple, last couple years especially, I think. But we as people of faith are left with a specific problem to solve. These verses are in here. They're in our scriptures. There's no doubt. We don't get to act like they're not there. We don't like to get to act like we can just pretend those ones aren't and cut pieces out like, you know, we are, uh, want to do sometimes. 
So what exactly do we do when the very same Bible that's supposed to help guide and form us morally and spiritually seems to be advocating for something that's so clearly immoral? One thing that we hope for all of you is that you will feel able to read, study, question, and engage, engage God's scriptures on your own and not just come in here and listen to me yap 20 minutes a week or, or 30 if I'm caffeinated. And so tonight is really less of a sermon and more about trying to make sure we're all equipped to go and read these things on our own, right? So I want to give you a couple of tools. And as I was preparing for this, uh, the things that I think are most important, I was reminded of what was actually a really crazy story that happened at the Dixon house this week. And I don't, actually, I don't think I've told anyone in here. Uh, you, you guys know we live uh, downtown. When you live downtown, which is kind of a thoroughfare for people, strange things happen. Uh, we've had people knocking on our door in the middle of the night looking for money or for food or something. We've had uh, stuff that came up disappearing because we didn't lock a car door or uh, the bed of the truck or whatever. And there's just lots of interesting things that happen coming through our neighborhood. Um, however, uh, this week, uh, I can say that I, I never really expected this to happen this week. I literally chased, um, chased a dude running on my property who had exactly zero clothes on. Just a dude running buck naked through my yard. And the way I ended up chasing him around was with a hose, right? Uh, because I, that's what was handy. And I'm not sure if he'd just been hitting the bottle too hard or what, but this was something, uh, you know, had him out of his head, whatever. It happened. This is a thing that we dealt with today, right? So that's, that's an interesting story for this week. Uh, it's a little less interesting when I tell you that the dude who hit the bottle too hard and ran naked through our yard was my two-year-old son, Chapman. See? It's probably the most fun thing that happened this week. Totally innocent, lots of fun. Maybe disturbing for the neighbors if they looked out the window, but we had a great time. We bathed outdoors, not we. Our kids bathed outdoors. <laughs> Went in Mississippi, right? So uh, it was hot, and uh, we, just, we just hosed them off and, and scrubbed them down outside and chased them around with a hose, all that kind of stuff. Had a great time. But see, context, as we've said a bunch in the last few weeks, context matters. If you lift certain parts of a story out, Without the context surrounding it, you change the meaning. You had a different picture in your head, and I'm sorry for the picture you did have in your head, uh, than what really happened, right? I tell us again, because it's several times the past couple weeks we've said context matters. Um, so I want you to consider the three contexts that we have to hold in front of us when we take on uh, scripture like the one that we have tonight. The literary context, the cultural context, and the narrative context. So again, this is going to feel a little more kind of classroomy than it does uh, sermony tonight. But uh, I want to walk through these things because I want you to know these things and hold on to them because they help a lot. Uh, they actually kind of saved the Bible for me in a lot of ways. First, let's talk about the literary context. Again, we can't forget that the verses, verses like, uh, you know, women listen to your husbands or slave listens to your masters. We can't forget these verses were never intended to be read in isolation, right? To take these single verses apart from what is said before and what is said after them in the literature is to change them completely. Remember all that we have talked about in the first uh, three or four weeks of looking at the book of Ephesians, right? The author, again, clearly painted a backdrop. The author painted an if before the then. What we are talking about now is then. 
If this, then that. The writer has already established that we are chosen by God, that we are intentional creations, that we are created in love and by love and for love. The writer has already established that, that all good gifts come from God and that they are all acts of grace, not something we have deserved, but something that has been freely given. The author has established that we know that God's grace and God's love has erased all the dividing lines that we like to create between each other to try and rank each other and divide each other. Those things are now gone. That we are, in fact, one body. We know that how we live is inextricably linked to what we believe. And we have learned that all we are asked to do is not based on some list of arbitrary rules, but they're rooted in a loving God. This is the context for everything else that is written in Ephesians. What comes next can't stand apart from what preceded it. It has to be set in that context. And when the writer begins to apply what these things might, how these things might work themselves out in the world that they live within when it's written, that's when we have to take that literary context, what's come before it and around it in the text itself. That's when we have to also consider the cultural context, the world that they live in. Love is always incarnate. Love always takes place in a context, in a kind of what they call the scandal of particularity, a place and a time. We must remember that the Bible was written a couple thousand years ago. The world was very different in uh, the world that Ephesians was written into. The letters, the stories, all of these things were written to people who lived in very different worlds than we do. There's a reason why you can't find any good scriptures directly instructing you on how, uh, how to navigate your car safely or social media. It's because they don't exist. The Bible was not written at a time when those were things to even consider. But there's also places in scripture where we can recognize words in English from the translation, words like marriage and divorce and children and slavery and widows and orphans, and go, it goes on and on and on. And they are words that we recognize, but they don't really mean the same thing for us that they did for them. Marriage is not what we think of in marriage when they talk about it in the Bible. Marriage was exclusively patriarchal. It was about the furtherance of the male patriarch, about his lineage, about his property, about growing his family. It was all about him. Wife and children, they were just pawns in that game, right? That's just how the world worked back then. Divorce was not a decision that a husband and a wife made together because they weren't getting along or things weren't going well and they decided they'd be better off apart. Divorce was something the husband did to the wife and it forced the wife into poverty or into prostitution or into uh, having to beg because there was no means for a woman to take care of herself. To say, uh, talk about divorce is to talk about something very different back then than it is now. Children were not honored and revered the way we honor and revere them now, arguably sometimes too much. Slavery, while obviously not a good thing in Scripture, was generally someone working off a debt. Again, far from a good thing, but it was not the same as what we think about in our sordid U.S. history, right? Widows and orphans were not just sad stories. They were completely at the mercy of the rest of the community who cares for them. These are words that we have, but they don't mean the same thing in the cultural context in which they are written. We can't talk about them without that consideration. And with that consideration, the thing that you realize is the words of Ephesians, while they may not be as, uh, as modern as we'd like them to be on some level, 
The words here in Ephesians, even about these two areas, would have been revolutionary in the context in which they were written. Telling wives to submit and slaves to listen to their masters was as common as can be. In fact, one of the, one of the things that's, <laughs> that's most tragic about modern interpretations that most people are no longer endorse slavery via Christianity, but patriarchy is still alive and well. And one of the things that's most disturbing about it is that people go to the Bible to justify it like we need the Bible to justify it. All the world has justified that in the entire history of the world, right? The Bible's not saying anything different if it endorses that. Which should be your first clue that that's probably not what's going on there. But telling wives to submit and slaves to listen was nothing new. But to precede both of those conversations by saying we are all part of one body, that God does not distinguish between different people. To begin that conversation by saying each of you, everyone, should submit to each other. That was an absurd premise in a hierarchical world. That was revolutionary. To tell patriarchs that they they were to lay down their lives for their wives the way Christ died for the church, no one talked to husbands like that. This is, this is out of this world in that context. To expect a slave owner to have thoughtful consideration for their slaves is not normal in this world. This is, this is a huge stretch for those cultures. This would be tremendous step forwards in the worlds that they lived in. This would be progress. May not be the ultimate destination, may not be everything we would like to see happen and have seen happen, but it is amazing progress in the time and space that they're in. It speaks new life into the world as it was. And again, incarnation always has to meet a world where it is. <coughs> Which brings us to our final context. We've looked at the literary, we look at the cultural, and finally you've got to consider the larger narrative context. The bigger story. The meta-narrative is the $10 word for it. Because all of Scripture, read as a whole, is telling a larger story. It is going someplace. It's starting here and moving here. And that, that direction, that story arc, matters. In fact, there's no part of Scripture that we should ever be interpreting without keeping that overarching story in mind. Same way it would work with your life. If you wrote an autobiography, you would hope someone would read the whole thing and consider all of it together. Because if you're anything like me, if someone just opened up to a random page, took certain lines or a paragraph or even one season of my life out of the larger narrative context, it would give you a completely incorrect uh, image of who I am and what I was doing and what my life was about. Those stories are true, those stories matter, but they matter within the context of the larger story. This is why scripture can disagree with itself at times. Now, you may have grown up like me and you weren't supposed to say that. It's just unfortunately very true. The easiest example is this. You'll remember in the Old Testament that it reads something along the lines of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Right? It, It allows for a reciprocity in violence, right? If someone takes your eye from you, you can take an eye from them. Someone takes a tooth from you, I'm not sure how that happens, but you can take a tooth from them. And you say, well, that's really violent. Why is that in the Bible? But you also have to understand, in the context in which that is giving, that was a massive restriction. <laughs> in the world in which they lived in, 
there was no eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. There was, you take out my eye, I murder your whole family and burn down your village. Right? You take out my tooth, I take out your whole family. For, for there to be a law for the Jews that says, no, 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 you, you cannot extract more from someone than they've taken from you, was a restriction on that kind of unlimited retribution that was common for the day. That would have been completely unique for that people group. So for the time it was in, it was a step in the right direction. Then later, Jesus will say, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And everyone listening to Jesus says, yeah, it's in the Bible. I thought you would know that because you're God. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And Jesus says, but I say, do not repay evil for evil. Do not resist an evil person. Turn the other cheek. Walk the extra mile. Pray for your enemies. Go on and on and on and on. Jesus has taken what was a restriction, and he progressed it even further. Because the story wasn't done yet. There is a direction to all of this. It goes from unlimited vengeance to a limited response to forgiveness and love of enemy, which we would argue as Christians is what God was really always about. We just could never really see it until we got to look at Jesus and find out what it looked like here on earth. The theological word for this is progressive revelation. It's a fuller understanding that arrives over time. And Scripture is undoubtedly telling a story about freedom, about equity, about love. It's undoubtedly moving that direction if you take a step far enough back and look at the story unfold from beginning to end. You can certainly find talk about wives and slaves and other parts of the Bible earlier in the Bible that do not meet the standard that Ephesians has laid out here. But Scripture is on a journey. It can't be understood in a single snapshot. And to take one or two verses out and try to apply them as some universal truth without the larger context weaponizes something that wasn't intended to be a weapon. Scripture is going someplace, and that someplace is towards equity, unconditional love, and a body undivided. Even in Galatians, Paul's himself, Paul himself says there is no male or female, Greek or Jew, slave or free, but all are one in Christ Jesus. This is where the story is going. And while Ephesians would have been extraordinary at the time it was written, I know it still feels a little too measured now because the story was still unfolding and we're 2,000 years later here. Okay, this is going long. Mike, what's your point? My point is that while Scripture does not always lay, thing out, lay things out as simply and directly as we might prefer, it is telling a story, and that story matters, and that story is good news for everyone. And if you ever hear someone telling a version of it that is not good news for everyone, they're not telling you the right story. The writer is taking the beautiful news of grace and unity and uh, being a part of a single body and working it out in the context that he is originally writing within. And perhaps the least helpful thing you can do is to pull out a verse from one of these, something like wives submit your husbands and everything or slaves obey your masters, to pull one of these things out and pretend you are somehow being true to the intent of the Bible because you are most certainly not. I'll close with a story that I heard this week that uh, is kind of amazing, I thought. 
I read about uh, the first ever motorized ambulance when someone invented that idea and thought it would be good. First ever motorized ambulance was apparently uh, delivered to Vancouver, British Columbia. They're going to be the first ones to try this whole idea out. A guy named Charles Cocking took it out for its first test drive. And then out on the first test drive, actually got to take care of the very first patient in the back of the very first ambulance. And that first patient was a pedestrian that he had hit with the ambulance and who eventually died. That's a, that's a, I mean, I'm sorry for that person, but that's a great story. And because he hit this pedestrian, then took them to the hospital, and that pedestrian died, the powers that be in Vancouver, British Columbia, returned the ambulance to the manufacturer out of fear that it would cause more harm than good. And that seemed like a really good metaphor to me. Because the Bible is intended to sound an alarm, right? It is intended to be a source of healing and reconciliation and love and redemption in a sick and broken world. It is intended to help us usher, uh, help usher us through imperfect circumstances which we are all in and towards the place of healing in which we all want to find ourselves until it's used to run vulnerable people over. At which point it's better left in the garage. So I don't have a good sermon for you tonight. Hopefully those are tools that we can use as we open the Bibles for ourselves and try to wrestle with what they mean for us in our lives. But my one request is that we be both active and responsible drivers of this tool so we can allow it to be the, uh, the vehicle for healing it's intended to be. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you have given us um, these scriptures. As, as difficult as they can sometimes be to understand, as weaponized as they can sometimes be in the wrong hands. But God, may we not be shy of these stories. May we not be scared of the damage we feel like they might cause and miss for the opportunity for healing that they can bring. God, may we be tellers of your good story. A good news that is for everyone. God, we do love you, and we ask all these things in your name. Amen.